0: Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So the first part of chapter, Paul, a lot of times in his letters, will give you some doctrine and then some application. Paul already gave you some application. Now he's going to give you some doctrine. Uh, and it says, this is a fantastic line, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Um, the word appeared. In the Greek, the first word in, the Greek, in a Greek sentence is usually there for emphasis. And the word appeared is there appeared, something, and with the concept of appearance is something important. In this, we're just going to deal with a few verses today, five verses, and then finish up chapter two. But we're going to talk about two appearances, the first appearance of Christ and the second that's to come, the blessed hope. You know, when, when one of the things that I really try to stress, and, and if you come a lot, you understand there are things that I emphasize that are I do not I don't make it complex, I don't make it complicated. But the idea that we have a God that reveals himself, that that matters, that we can know God because he shares something about himself. So when you see that something appeared and it's connected to God, it ought to always kind of say it's important. Something appeared or some concept appeared. And Paul said, we know that the grace that appeared, that belonged to God, that brings salvation to all people. So you have two really important New Testament doctrinal concepts, grace and salvation. So we're just going to talk a little bit about when the first time Christ came, grace appeared. Now, there's oh, been grace before, but there's significance to what the grace means. So to understand the New Testament concept of grace and the Old Testament also, we're focusing here on the New Testament, is the idea of God's kindly disposition towards people who don't deserve it it is God extending something that's not deserved. And I grew up, you know, as the Baptist, the cliche, it's God's unmerited favor. Well, the word unmerited, I I understand what that means. But really, and I agree with that, it is God doing something in the lives of his creation for those of us, which is all of us, who don't deserve anything. And the part and the grace of God is one of those characteristics that spin off his holiness. I'm going to preach on holiness in, in about uh, two Sundays on the uh, 19th. And the holiness of God is the central characteristic of God. It's who He is. He's perfect, complete, perfect and complete. And we who are sinners cannot come into the presence of holy God. So how does God deal with us? The only way God can ever deal with us as a holy God is in grace. Now, the grace of God is not fragmented. I hear people say, I just need a little more grace. As a follower of Jesus, I have the full measure of the grace of God. I don't always experience the way I should because of my sinfulness, nor do I utilize the grace of God the way that I should. It's important to understand that the grace of God is not something that any person can resist or put aside. I, in, in, um, reform, in the reform movement, um, there's a term used called irresistible grace. Sometimes badmots get all bent out of shape. I don't know why. Of course the grace of God is irresistible. How do you resist what God wants to give? His grace. It's always irresistible. We we sin and rebel against God. We can resist some things about God. But the pouring of God's undeserved favor upon us is not something we get to determine. If something's resistible, we get to determine whether it occurs. You know, so if a guy falls in love with a girl, he may think he's irresistible. She may prove him wrong. Some of you know what I mean. But that's not how this works. And the grace of God is so multifaceted. For instance, it is purely by the grace of God that when we rebel against him, he doesn't destroy us. Why doesn't God just destroy all sinners immediately? Because of his grace. I've heard people say that only Christians can experience the grace of God. That's totally untrue. Why do we make stuff up that's not in Scripture? Every human being experiences the grace of God. I hear people say that, you know, the birth of a child is a miracle. It's not a miracle unless there was something unusual in the birth, like the child was supposed to die and didn't. Birth is not a miracle. In fact, the birth is the exact opposite of a miracle. It is the most common thing that ever occurs. But what birth is, it's still an act of grace that God inputs and imputes upon that which came together to his very image. It's all grace. And I don't want to make grace such a broad topic that it loses its, 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 its real uh, emphasis or what it means, but our interacting with God at all or his interaction with us is always grace because we never deserve it. And it's an amazing thing when you start realizing that God is constantly working with us, in us, and through us purely by the measure of his favor, his grace. Now, it says here that this particular concept of grace deals with salvation. Salvation is a very specific and understandable part of his grace. You know, God's grace is kind of a huge thing. And I don't don't ever want you to think of God's grace as fragmented. But he expresses his grace to us and we experience his grace in different ways. And part of it is in salvation. The concept of salvation comes from the idea of the inability of one to rescue oneself. It's really a medical term back there to some degree. Spoke of someone who was going to die, and they were unable to save themselves. It was used in terms of uh, someone could be shipwrecked at sea, and if someone didn't come and rescue them, and save them, they would die. Salvation speaks of the inability to do something. So here, the concept of grace and salvation just mesh together perfectly. Us being saved is something we can't do that comes purely by the divine favor and disposition of God and only by him. And it only comes one way by him through Jesus. You know, I just finished up a series where we talked about all sorts of things, but I know people like to think there are other ways to come to God. Now here, here, this is, this is the thing. What are the other ways that come to God? Because you're presuming or assuming that that is a path of grace. When you say, well, if I'm good enough, you know, and the balance sheet works in my favor, I'll get to heaven. Well, how is that grace if God is going to give you what you earned? If you're Hindu, you can find salvation by the way of works or devotion, the way of knowledge or the way of worship. You can worship deity. You can have a certain amount of knowledge. You can be devoted or do good works. All of that requires your fundamental effort. Islam requires your fundamental effort. The enlightenment of Buddhism requires your fundamental effort, and Christianity requires nothing but you to trust God with the very faith he gives you by his, what's the word I'm looking for, oh yeah, grace. <laughs> and so salvation and grace go together. And part of the reason we have to reject any other concept of salvation apart from Jesus is it because it denies the grace of God. And it says, my pathway to God is built on works, not by grace. And it's Paul who says, for by grace are you saved through faith. So this verse is is easy to read and kind of just fly over it until you realize what appeared. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That grace is Jesus, or at least he's connected to that grace. Now, the word phrase, all people, can it cause difficulty. Obviously, not everyone gets saved. But this is what we need to understand, and we can never lose sight of this. And some theologies lose sight. Remember, if your theology is, you know, kind of batting up and butting up against what the Bible says, probably change your theology. I, I, I know sometimes I like to, to make my theology work because I've spent a lot of time getting it right, so I'm not going to be wrong. But it's very clear that every person potentially can experience salvation by grace. Every person can. But it came for all people. Now, I know some groups say, well, the all people are all the ones who will be saved. That's not the common understanding. That's not the common way of, I mean, if, if you have to have A master's or a doctorate from a seminary to understand the scriptures, you're doing it wrong. You don't have to be all that smart to understand scriptures. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. But when you read salvation came to all people, what are you thinking? Oh, well, anybody can be saved. Well, yeah, because that's pretty much what it means in English Greek, French, German, Czechoslovakian, whatever. And so this is this beautiful statement that at the first appearance, something big happened for all people by the grace of God, salvation came. And notice what it said instructing us, teaching us informing us. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard, which is the best translation. It leaves out or doesn't really translate a little Greek word hidden in there. And it should say, instructing us with this purpose in mind, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, in a godly manner in the present age. So what is the grace of God in salvation? It's making the assumption that now that we have been saved. right? He's talking to saved people. So here's what it is. This grace instructs us to do what? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To deny it. To cast it aside. Those things that tempt us most. And I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking ungodliness and worldly desires. Man, is that, not, is that not just there in our culture? And I get tempted by that stuff. Ungodliness is those things which are displeasing to God. Worldly desires. The word desire, our word lust comes from it. It's just... It's the things that the world says, here, enjoy this. Now, I'm, not, I'm not talking about a cheeseburger. I'm not talking about, hey, I'm going to go watch a ball game. I'm talking about those things that we know God doesn't want of us. Relationships that shouldn't exist, lifestyles that shouldn't exist, habits that shouldn't exist. Those things we have to deny. And what helps us deny that, this is so cool, It's not our own willpower. It is the grace of God that saves us. I think of all the dumb things I could have done and would have done, but God somehow kept me from doing it. And I realized, well, that was the grace because I was going to want to do that, and I was heading in that direction. And why did that not happen? Because the grace of God moved me. I realized you can't do that. And so we need to understand that God's grace that saves us, keeps teaching us. And this is what the problem is. The problem is they got here is false teachers. And I went over sometimes because this takes weeks to do and we forget all this. If you just sit down and read it at one time, like when I do a deep fry and I go through a book all in one night and it all relates real quickly, sometimes you forget over a period of weeks. But you've got this problem with false teachers. But instead, here's what we do. We live. Oh, man, the the word for live, is the, the whole concept is just so beautiful. It's to have life at its fullness. We live sensibly. We live righteously, doing what is right, and in a godly manner in the present age. He's talking about how we live on earth, the present age. So, you know, we we live in a way that's sensible, that makes sense, that's temperate, that's moderate. We live with righteousness, seeking to serve God in a godly manner, doing the things that God wants to do. You know, the difference between being godly and ungodly isn't, you know, how big your Bible is or how well you dress. Obviously, it's not how well you dress. It's whether you do the things that honor God or not. It's not complicated. Hey, does this honor God? Yeah, okay. Does this honor God? No, don't do that. Now, you, sometimes you've got to get whether on or God or not right, and sometimes you mess that up. It's not complicated. Don't make Christianity complicated. And one of the best sources to know what to do is just go read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us, this is how I want you to live your life. Oh, okay. Don't curse that person. Don't, don't be mean to my enemy. Don't, don't, tell, don't think horrible thoughts about someone. Not only should you not commit adultery, just don't lust, which is solving that problem. Don't be greedy. Learn how to pray. Do unto others as you want them to do to you. But at the same time, be smart enough to know that if someone is dishonoring God, have nothing to do with their life. I mean, it's laid out there for you. And then he says this: "This in the present age, but looking for the blessed hope, and there is that word appearing of the glory of our great." God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he says, looking for the blessed hope. The term blessed hope is the way that's common in the New Testament of saying the second coming of Christ. And I hear the word blessed hope used a lot incorrectly, but he's talking about the second coming. He says, so you're looking, you're, listen, you're living in this world a certain way looking for the second coming. And this, is, this is the important thing. It doesn't say live in this life trying to figure out what the second coming is. Don't live in this life spending all your time trying to gear up and get it figured out. You live today as if Christ will come tomorrow. But just don't expect him to come tomorrow. You know why? Because he hasn't come in a lot of tomorrows yet. They all, they, everybody that was a believer back then, early on, believed that Christ was coming in their lifetime. I have people say all the time, I think Jesus is coming in our lifetime. Well, good for you. Everybody believed that. They believed that back in Paul's. They believed that back then. The apostles all believed that. When you read Paul, it sure sounded like he thought that. Here's what I know. He hadn't come in 2,000 years. I don't really think, and as, I'm, since as I'm getting closer to the end, as, as you, know, I'm, you know, I have fewer and fewer meals left, which is why I don't eat certain things because I'm afraid. What if that's my last meal? Hey, let's go eat Chinese. I don't want Chinese. What if that's my last meal? Let's go. Let's go have some goodie. What was my point? Oh yeah. I don't worry so much about what the end will look like. I want to be prepared for it, but I have a limited amount of time till my end comes, to help people come to Jesus. So that's what I'm, I'm living today with the expectation that Christ is coming soon. And I want to be prepared by doing the single most important thing I can do. Because once he comes, you know what's not going to happen? No one else is getting saved. And if you've got one of those theologies that talks about how after the second coming of Christ, all these people are getting saved, you need to read the New Testament and not what someone's teaching you that's incorrect. Because it is crystal clear, man. When Jesus comes, it is flat dab over. So I got to get ready for that. That's what he's saying. But notice how he describes this blessed hope. He's just the appearing of the glory. Now, I told you God was holy. We don't experience the holiness of God. How do we, so we, don't, we, we, we don't experience the holiness of God outside his glory. You can't see holy. You can't touch holy. You can't feel holy. So the idea of the glory of God is it. So in Isaiah, it was said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's how you know it's holy. You experience the glory. Now I'm going to preach that in two and a half weeks, so I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm just giving you a teaser. You know, it's the trailer. You know how you go to the movies? The best part of the movie sometimes is what, is what happens at the beginning. It, the best part of the movie is, is the $7 Coke and the $7 popcorn followed by the, the, the you know, the preview. So give me the preview. And, you know, and if you want to spend $7, go to the cafe. We'll get you that cover right there. But notice, it's the glory of our great, magnificent, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Here's what's important. In, his, in here, is, it's saying that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. There's, there's several times that Jesus is actually called God and oftentimes God and Savior. There's some debate among some. Um, that, well, maybe they're talking about two different people, God the Father and Jesus the Son. So here's, now I don't expect you, any of you to know Greek, except for one guy back there should know Greek. In, in the Greek language, it doesn't matter the details, but the way it's written in the Greek, God and Savior belong to the same person. There's a technical thing about Greek. So it, it's God and Savior is, is, is describing the same one. And the one they're describing is Jesus Christ. He is God. It's okay to say that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. That's what we teach all the time. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three personalities, three persons of the, of the, of the Trinity. That's an important doctrine to believe in. So here you have the, the beauty of the grace that we know comes from God. And, and so Jesus is God. The grace of God is Jesus who is God. And he is the Savior, the one who saves. So when you think of grace coming from God, well, yeah, and Jesus is God. And you think of salvation coming from Jesus, he is both. And it says this in verse, who gave himself up, who gave himself for us, to redeem us, and it should read, for the purpose of to redeem us. So he gave himself, he voluntarily gave himself to redeem us, to buy us back from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. So here's what he says. This came from God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself freely. So we teach he freely gave of himself in coming to this earth to die in order to redeem us, to, to, to buy us back. Now The concept of redemption is an important word. Too often people get caught up in, well, who did he redeem us from? Did he redeem us from sin or the devil? Or no. The purpose of the, of the understanding of redemption isn't who it was from, but who paid the price. The, the purpose of, the, of redeeming is the price that was paid. So the key to understanding in the New Testament, understanding of, our, of Jesus and our, and our doctrine of Jesus, our Christology, is that Jesus is the price of redemption, the price for me being saved, me being My sin being forgiven, for me being redeemed, is Jesus. That's that's a heavy price, considering that he is God the Savior. That is a heavy price of redemption. He redeemed us from every lawless deed. Once you've done, once you're thinking about doing a little bit, once you haven't done yet, all the things and then to purify, the word purify means to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Who is that? Those are believers. And, and here's a little bit of, new, you kind of the idea of clear, cleansing the people kind of looks back at the Old Testament a little bit, the people of God and Israel. And, you know, the church is the new Israel. That's what's taught in the New Testament. That's what you should believe. Some of you probably have been taught that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Well, not according to Jesus or Paul or Peter or the guys who wrote the New Testament. So let me just always remind you, if your theology and what is taught in the New Testament don't agree, change your theology. We are we are the people. And he purifies us. Why? So we can do good deeds also. So in the midst of all this false teaching going on, he says, Don't forget, you were saved. So you can do that which is good. And that which is good and pleasing to God. He cleansed you away from every lawless deed so you can serve him. And help meet the needs of people. Then he comes to verse 15. It's beautiful. I have a note that says, key. I guess that means it's important. Sometimes I write notes to myself. I can't remember why I wrote them. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one is disregarded. These are commands. These things, what things? What I just told you. Speak and exhort. The, the word um, to speak is just speech. It's just say it. It's not the word for preach. It's not the word you know, for evangelism. Just what I taught you teach others. And the word exhort is a word, uh, paracali, our, our term. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, Paraclete, the one to come alongside. It's what the when you think of what the Holy Spirit. A lot of times, the Holy Spirit is called Comforter, and you know, doesn't John fourteen fifteen all that, and and uh, the word Paraclete is used, and you know, it's a debate of what it means. It's the advocate. It's the one that comes alongside. It's the one that helps. The concept is to call along. Paracleo means to call alongside. So you call alongside someone to encourage them, to exhort them. To move them, come alongside people this is so this is so pretty it's beautiful and you speak to them what I've just shared with you and you exhort you encourage you come alongside in your speech instead of preaching at or to people, we need to come alongside and live life with them you really do you know I I I take, I'll cover all the preaching. And you and I together will come alongside people and share. There are people in my life. And it's really, you know, since Debbie's passing, it's really hit me because I've dealt with more people from my my life because of a variety of reasons. And I'm finding myself more and more coming alongside people being trying to encourage them. And And I find myself Obviously, I want them to get, their, you know, to get all the sin out of their life. I got it. But my major concern isn't to fix their life. And my major concern isn't to help, well, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. Get all this fixed. My major concern is, hey, I love you. I'm here with you. I'm here for you. Here's Jesus. What can I do to help you come to Jesus? As I get older, I know that's a lot more effective. Oh, man, I, I, I'm going to do a lot of preaching. I got that covered. That's in my blood. That's my job description. You paid me for that. No one pays you to preach. No one tells you. That's not your job. Your job is to come alongside people and to teach them and encourage them. But also something else. This is so important. Oh, yeah. And rebuke when necessary. That word rebuke just means correct. Correct them. Correct them about the things of God. A lot of that has to do with believers in the church. So sometimes when you're encouraging them in speaking, you also have to correct. We think rebuke is in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. you I've done that before to a guy. (laughs) It was a sound guy, Mike, in my my last church. I rebuked him. Quit messing up my sermon. That's not why. But I mean, really it just means... Correct, and you can be gentle with that. Now, you do it with all authority. That's the important thing. What authority? Not your authority, the authority of Christ. Christ sends you to do that. Christ wants you to come alongside people, love them. You speak truth to them, you encourage them, and you correct them with the authority that is his, not on yours. See, this is what Jesus expects. When someone, I'm talking to you about Jesus, and they get something wrong, you know what I do? I correct them. If they get something wrong about Jesus, I lovingly correct them. No, that's not really what he meant. Now, I do it lovingly if I, if I like them and we're close. Sometimes people just come up to me sometimes, you know, and just tell me something. And I'm, you know, listen, if you come up to me on Sunday morning, you, you get what you deserve on that. You understand on Sunday morning, I'm focused on four sermons and meeting people I have never met before, Guess If you come up to me and you want to engage in a conversation, do not be angry at me if I blow you off. And if you want to have a debate, we're not going to debate. I'm going to give it to you quick, simple, down and dirty. You like it or not, too bad. That's your fault, not my grumpy self fault. I'm telling you ahead of time, I'm irritable and I'm grumpy on Sunday mornings. Unless you're a guest. (laughs) Or maybe, you know, I really like you. So I'm just telling you I'm going to be grumpy and irritable. Well, I say all that because our task, the authority does not mean we're dictatorial. It means this is what Jesus said. Remember when I tell you to be fluent in Jesus? No, that's why. Be fluent in the New Testament? No, that's why. If you're not doing that, how are you going to know? No, you know? I think it's handy. I'm not fluent there yet, yet, but I know a little bit. It comes in handy. Man, that's where you want to be. You, you, you're going you're gonna to engage in people's lives. And we're living in a time when so many people don't know Jesus. It's always been that way, but it's just, it just seems it's just become more and more clear. I can be, you know, the Christian, you know, that sits around condemning the world and the culture and telling them you're going to hell. You don't know Jesus. And every time you do something wrong, I can pull out, you know, Scripture and verse and and show that. Or I can be the Christian that comes alongside them and say, hey, look, man, you don't got this right. I love you. Let me help you with it. And I'm here with you. And I'll go through life with you. And I'm going to disagree with you, a lot of stuff, but I'm here. What you need? Let me help you with Jesus. I'm going to, I, I, I'm just guessing that's more effective. And he ends by saying, don't let anybody disregard you. Yeah, he's telling Titus. Remember, he's dealing with false teachers. Don't let those guys disregard you. Don't, don't let them just blow you off. I deal with a couple, I've had a conversation, with a couple of young pastors lately, which understand right now in my life, anything under 55 is your young pastor. And, um, you know, they go through some tough times. And one of the things that happened, I told a guy today, I said, you listen to me very carefully. 80% of the people in that church look to you for guidance and leadership. You're their pastor. And if you love them, they'll trust you. The 20% or the 10% causing you problem, they don't want to side with the 10% causing you trouble. They want to follow you. Now, I won't tell you exactly what I said after that about the group causing trouble because I don't want to you know, play my cards too quick if I have to later. Basically what I said, You do not let a handful of people cast you aside. And you don't let that handful of people, I didn't use the word disregard, but do that. You are the one they want to look to. Remember this, people who are lost, you're the follower of Jesus. Don't let, you're the one. You're the one following Jesus. You follow them to do that.